Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our most gracious and holy Father, we give you much thanks this evening for establishing our steps here, for every mercy of yours, Lord, that has brought us here tonight. We thank you. And with a holy anticipation, Heavenly Father, we look to you through the mediation of your eternal Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. For what we pray will be a genuine work of the Holy Spirit accompanying the teaching of your holy word, illuminating our understanding, enlivening our affections with a greater love, Lord, for you, a greater fear of you, that we will be left in greater awe of your infinite, exceeding greatness. We trust in you for such a work of grace, for the sake, for the honor, and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our Emmanuel. Amen. Well, I invite you this evening to open up God's word to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to read a very lengthy passage of scripture, starting at verse 1 of Isaiah 7 and reading all the way to verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 8. Beginning at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. 
Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, Every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then... The Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. 
and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, Word of the living, eternal God. During the Christmas season, there are specific biblical passages which are always cited in view of the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, there is, of course, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. But in the Old Testament, two of the most well-known and most quoted verses come from the book of Isaiah. They are Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. While there's nothing wrong in citing such passages that do in fact speak directly to the first advent of our Lord, yet these said passages do not appear as mere isolated texts. In other words, they are part of a larger context which speaks directly to a people in redemptive history that we would do well to understand. So while there is an obvious application to us proceeding from these passages, yet there was also an application to the original recipients of these prophetic words from God's prophet. And to understand, therefore, Isaiah 7, 14 and Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in their context, it will only make these familiar biblical passages that much richer and dearer to us as God's people. So for the next few weeks then, I want us to work through Isaiah chapters 7, 8, and 9 as an expositional study to help us see with a clearer vision what chapter 7 verse 14 and chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 are saying in their proper context. Why did God's prophet, Isaiah, speak such words of prophetic truth during his day to the house of David in the land of Judah? Well, to begin answering this question, I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8 and verse 10 as we consider what I'm calling a crisis for faith. But before we launch into this passage directly, we need to first be introduced to Isaiah himself. Who is he? And what is his place in redemptive history? Isaiah is among what is called the major prophets in the Old Testament. The other two prophets in this category are Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah, however, precedes these two prophets for a number of reasons. First, his call as a prophet came in 740 B.C. during the year of King Uzziah's death. And for the next 40 years, Isaiah was active in Judah throughout the kingly reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Isaiah's residence was in Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom. Sources outside the Bible suggest that Isaiah was part of the wider royal family, perhaps a cousin of Uzziah. His father was called Amoz, and his wife, 
whose name is not identified, was a prophetess, and together they had two sons. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was killed during Manasseh's reign. Isaiah's ministry, on the whole, was one of great hardship. He preached and prophesied as Judah stumbled and staggered towards the point of no return, while Jeremiah and Ezekiel were active after the fact. When God called Isaiah to the prophetic ministry, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord gave his prophet the cold hard facts of what he would face with Judah. The majority of this people, the Lord tells Isaiah, would be spiritually hardened to the truth of God's word, while only a remnant, just a small fraction of the people, would be true believers in the Lord. Yet in spite of this trial, the Lord revealed himself to Isaiah as the sovereign king of the universe, whose rule cannot be overturned and whose purpose will not be annulled by what man does in all his disobedience. This realization of who God is as the eternal, immutable, omnipotent, sovereign king fueled Isaiah's faith and perseverance to remain true to the Lord in his call, no matter how defiant and unbelieving Judah proved to be. Now, concerning the structure of the book of Isaiah, there are 66 chapters divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 39 focus on the announcement of God's judgment. This begins with chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 12, verse 6, as it concerns prophecies of judgment on Judah. Following this, in chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 24, verse 33, there are prophetic judgments on the surrounding nations. And then, in chapter 25, verse 1, to chapter 35, and verse 10, there are hymns and prophecies encouraging Judah to trust in God, finally concluding in chapters 36 to 39 with some history that illustrates how God delivers his people when they trust in him and judges them when they don't. Chapters 40 to 66 then starts the second major section of Isaiah with the whole focus on the future and the prophetic promise of God's salvation. So with this general overview of Isaiah and his prophetic book before us, we now enter into our study this evening in chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 10, as we look at a crisis for faith. From this passage, we will see, first, God's judgment on unbelief, and then second, the perseverance of saving faith. To begin with, let's consider God's judgment on unbelief. As Isaiah 7 verse 1 opens up, we're told that, in the day, that, that it is in the days of Ahaz. The year would be 734 B.C. And the immediate circumstances was a military coalition led by the kings of Syria and Israel who had come to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack. The joint forces of Syria and Israel was to, keep us, was to keep Assyria at bay from further expansion since, since they, along with Egypt, were the two major world powers. To the dismay of Syria and Israel, Judah, under Ahaz, disinclined to join their forces against Assyria, which turned them against Judah, to pressure them into an alliance. 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28 give us the background to what we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 7. But when word reached Ahaz of 
Syria and Israel's plan to attack, Isaiah 7 and verse 2 reports that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, Judah is absolutely struck with great astonishing fear. They're in a panic. They are terrified for their lives. It is at this point that God steps in, as it were, with his prophet to speak a word of hope and faith to Ahaz. Now, it might be asked, why should we care about what happens to Ahaz? Why would God send Isaiah to this king of Judah? Dale Ralph Davis answers this question in a very helpful way for us to see the bigger picture of what is happening here. He writes, it's because the Lord's reputation is at stake. The shadow of 2 Samuel 7 hovers over Isaiah 7. At the very heart of Isaiah 7 is 2 Samuel 7 and the Lord's promise to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And the end product of that line of kings will be a just ruler, namely the Messiah. So a ridiculous thing happened one day. Who can understand the wild commitments God makes? The Lord made a promise to David, and the whole world structure and flow and hope of world history will rest on the existence of a line of kings in a puny Near Eastern state no larger than Connecticut and Rhode Island combined. But if Ahaz and the dynasty of David go down the tube, that is, if these two tin-horn hotheads from north of the border have their way, then God's covenant promise to David proves false. No small stakes. So then in the light of God's covenant promise to David, which is the outworking of God's covenant of redemption. God sends his prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz to speak a direct word from the Lord of hope and truth. Two things we should note here of importance. First, Isaiah meets Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. When where Isaiah finds Ahaz is at the emergency water supply system. King Ahaz is making sure their water supply is secure with this impending attack. Second, when God tells Isaiah to go to Ahaz, he also specifies that Isaiah brings his son, Shear Jason. Why does this matter? It's because of what Sheer Jashub's name means. His name means the remnant will return. So then Ahaz is being reminded in a very pointed way that his only safety lies in the Lord and his might, despite what Judah's enemies may do. No matter what Damage they bring, yet they will never be able to wipe out God's people in total. The Lord will have a remnant who will return to him. But it's only a remnant, which on the flip side is a word of potential judgment 
for the majority of Judah's people. This is why then the primary message Isaiah brings to King Ahaz is trust in the Lord no matter what may be in front of you. Trust in the Lord no matter what may be in front of you. In verse 4 we read, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. The force of this exhortation is saying to Ahaz, be careful to do nothing. Be careful to do nothing. According to 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 and 9, Ahaz was under pressure from his advisors to play the astute politician by allying himself with Assyria against the threat of Syria and Israel. But God's word to Ahaz was not counsel for clever political moving, but to simply trust the Lord with all your heart. What power does Syria and Israel really have against Judah? The Lord assures Ahaz that what this northern alliance is planning shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Their threats and all their military movements are just the stirring up of nothing. However, the driving point of this prophetic word to Ahaz is that he and Judah must trust the Lord, which implies a warning to not form an alliance with Assyria for safety. This is why the Lord clinches his word of hope with an admonition at the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. One thing important to note about this warning is that the verbs are used in the plural so that this is not just a personal word to Ahaz, but to all the house of David. If they failed to trust the Lord for their deliverance and safety, but placed their trust in Assyria, then the consequences of such misplaced trust would be the destruction of Judah. In other words, it is only the Lord who can establish them and keep them established. Man's will and ways are futile and thereby destructive. But if this word from the Lord wasn't enough, in verses 10 and 11, God offers Ahaz a sign that what he has promised for Judah's security can be trusted. In fact, Ahaz can ask anything from the sky to the grave and the Lord will do it. The Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now one would think, how could Ahaz pass up such kindness and mercy from the Lord? But the answer Ahaz gives to God's gracious offer reveals a heart that is hardened in unbelief. In verse 12 we read, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Hmm. So let's think about this answer. On the surface, it sounds very pious. 
Ahaz appears to be echoing Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, where Israel is commanded not to put the Lord to the test. But how could Ahaz be putting God to the test if it is God making the offer to give the king a sign? No, the truth is Ahaz is pretending to be something he's not. The reason he is rejecting the Lord's offer is because he would have to believe the sign God gives. His refusal then is shrouded in a false piety in order to hide his real motives. This is because behind Ahaz's refusal lies the plan he's already made. A plan that rejects God's promise for a serious help. And what this reveals to Isaiah is only the beginning fulfillment of what God told his prophet would be the majority reaction of Judah's response to the word of the Lord. It is a heart of unbelief. Now, in response to this, Isaiah gives God's prophetic word, which is a word of judgment. Reading verses 13 through 17. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. From offering a sign to Ahaz, God now imposes a sign. But to Ahaz and his house and to the people of Judah, this is a sign of judgment. And what verses 14 through 17 is essentially spelling out for this unbelieving king and the people he leads in unbelief is that God's promise to David will remain in spite of Judah's unbelief. But how will God's covenant promise continue? It will be by way of a supernatural birth that will bring forth a king who is no ordinary king, for his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yet for Ahaz in Judah, they'll never see Emmanuel. This is because, first of all, he will not come on the scene till Judah is ravaged by war and thus overtaken by the darkest of times. This is what is meant by Emmanuel eating curds and honey. These foods are not delicacies of paradise, but that of poverty. And in verses 20 through 25, the curds and honey diet is explained by the devastation coming on Judah. But who is bringing this devastation to Ahaz and his generation, but the very one in whom Ahaz is trusting as his savior 
over against God, the king of Assyria. So then, understand this. What we look at with joy as the hope of our salvation from Isaiah 7.14 was not good news to Ahaz, but very bad news. Explaining this further, Dale Ralph Davis wrote, you must hear the judgment tone of verses 10 through 17 in their context. The king whose name is God with us will only come after Ahaz has brought ruin on the nation. As Peter said to Simon in reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, so Isaiah seems to say to Ahaz in reference to Emmanuel, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. All this must be kept in mind when many claim that the child promised in verse 14 must have been one who was somehow contemporary with Ahaz in order for the prophecy to have some relevance to Ahaz. But that is just Isaiah's point. Emmanuel has no relevance to Ahaz. Ahaz has chosen the king of Assyria instead. But Emmanuel will come in spite of Ahaz in his unbelief, but he will not come for Ahaz. This means we should quit looking for a contemporary fulfillment in Ahaz's own time. There is none. There is none. But the obvious driving point of this prophecy as a whole is in whom do you place your trust? In whom do you place all your trust? For Ahaz in his generation, was there trust in God's promise or in Assyria's power? Was it in the arm of the Lord or in the arm of the flesh? Ahaz answered with his trust fixed in an earthly savior who brought both immediate and eternal ruin. Ahaz was a man of unbelief, and God judged him for it. But thankfully, and amazingly, even in this generation of Judah, in Isaiah's time, God preserved a remnant of his people who did not follow Ahaz in his unbelief. And it is to these saints that Isaiah chapter 8 verses 1 to 10 speaks, which takes us to our next major point, the perseverance of saving faith. Our primary attention in this passage will be verses 9 and 10, which compose the words of faith, which God's remnant expresses to Assyria and any other nation bringing devastation to their country. However, Preceding these two verses is the announcement of another birth, but one that would be very contemporary to Ahaz and Judah. It was the birth of Isaiah's second son, who, like his older brother, is given a symbolic name, which speaks to the immediate situation Judah faces under God's judgment, not to mention the destruction 
of other states as well. The boy's name is Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, which means speedy spoil, hasty prey, or quick pickings, easy prey. The reference point of this name is pointing to the coming of the Assyrians and thus speaks of the way in which they will come quickly and hasten after the prey. This is why in verse 4 the Lord says that before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, in the length of time, that it would take an infant to reach the age where he could stammer out, my father and my mother, the Assyrian king, would come and devastate the two northern powers. Adding further to this message in verses 5 through 8, since Ahaz and most of Judah despise God's mercy and turn to Assyria for help, they will get Assyria but not in the way they're anticipating. Like the northern powers of Syria and Israel, Judah likewise will suffer near annihilation under the hand of Assyria. In fact, compared to a massive flood, Assyria will overwhelm Judah until Judah will barely be able to keep her chin above water level. But in the darkness of this depredation, God gives a light of hope to his remnant where the promised son of chapter 7, verse 14, is recalled as the one to whom this land belongs. And Assyria's outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So then, on the heels of this judgment on Judah, promised by God, one has to ask how God's true people, his remnant, will fare in such dismal and terrifying times. The answer is what we read in verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be scattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. And why is that? What does it say? For God is with us. Which can also be translated... Emmanuel. Unlike Ahaz and his cronies making deals with the enemy, God's people say, in defiance of what Assyria plans to do, your military might and all your political strategies will come to nothing because God is with us. No matter how ravaged and ruined Judah would become, and it would be devastating. Yet God's remnant stood in steadfast faith, taking God at 
his word. In fact, the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, this coming of Emmanuel, is clearly the hope which God's remnant fixes their faith and therefore lives by in the face of Assyria's terror. This is why they cry out, Emmanuel, for God is with us. Now, what should be our takeaway from this tremendous passage of God's word? Let me offer you three great biblical principles that can be easily drawn from this passage. Principle number one, there is no certain hope in any earthly ruler, no matter how promising or persuasive they may be. There is no certain hope in any earthly ruler, no matter how promising or persuasive they may be. Turn with me to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. In this church family, we should know this psalm really well because we sing this psalm quite often. It's hymn number 53 in your Trinity hymnal. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 146, look at, look at what it says here. Look at this. Put not your trust in who? Princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, when he returns to the earth, that is, when he dies, on that very day, the day of his death, his plans perish. Do you think evangelical Christians in America need to camp out here in a very big way? In a very, very big, big way. In the hymn that I mentioned, hymn 53, which is Psalm 146 that we sing very often in this church, in the first stanza, reciting what we just read here in verses 3 and 4, it says, Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. Is this clearly a lesson from Isaiah 7 and 8? Is this not what we see, in fact, King Ahaz doing 
putting his confidence in the king of Assyria, putting his trust, his hope in this political prince. Ahaz had no faith in God. Ahaz was an unbeliever. But even for us who are true believers, who are God's remnant, that holy seed, because of the, because of the remaining corruptions of our own flesh, we too can be and often are greatly tempted to set our sights on a political figure as a political savior. If only we had this man in the Oval Office, everything would be great. Look at the cult, the cult, C-U-L-T, the cult following of Donald Trump. A cult following. And how many conservative Christians who all watch Fox News said, Trump is our savior. Trump is this nation's savior. And you know what? The same thing was being said in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. And of course, I personally believe that Reagan was a far, far better leader than Donald Trump ever was or could be. But Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, take your pick. They're all just men. They're all just men. Men whom the scripture says on the day they die, what happens to all their plans? They perish. They perish. What does God say? He says, there is no salvation in any prince, in no president, in no king. There is no salvation. And so that's why as God's people, as believers in Christ, Beloved, we have got to be very, very guarded in our hearts from going down that subtle, slippery slope and getting carried away with all the emotion and all the fanfare that happens in our nation, especially during election time and especially, most especially, when it comes to the electing of a man and even a woman, because we have women throwing their hat in the ring to, to be president. We would do well to recite, to memorize, to hide in our heart Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. And sing to ourselves, Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. 
He shall die to dust returning and his purposes shall end. So, what's the principle? There's no certain hope in any earthly ruler, no matter how promising or persuasive they may be. Number two, since God is with us and nothing man or devil do can overturn God's provision for us, then our faith in God has no reason to ever be shaken. Now here I take you to a very familiar psalm. In fact, really the most famous psalm there is out of the entire Psalter. Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I'm sure there are some of us here who could recite this entire psalm by heart. If you grew up in a Christian home, you cut your teeth on this. Just like the Lord's Prayer. But you know, it's just one of those passages we're so familiar with, and we don't even know what it means. <laughs> I can quote it, I can recite it, but what does it mean? Well, look at the assurance that's given here. In Psalm 23, in verse 1, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You can paraphrase that, and it would be very accurate to the text. I shall not lack anything. Because that's what David, that's what he's saying. That's what he's, that's what he's confessing. He's confessing that because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. All my needs will be met. Every last one of them. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. But then look at verses 4 and 5a. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Unlike Ahaz and the people of Judah, whose fear shook them like trees being shaken by the wind. But if your faith is truly in the Lord, if your faith is truly resting in God, then with David you can confess, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Look what he says. For you are with me. So not only, not only is God with his people in the green pastures and beside still waters, but God is also with us in the very dark valley. And David says, your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. The rod, the staff. The rod was a weapon. A weapon to fend off the animals that would attack the sheep. And of course the staff 
is what the shepherd used to guide any sheep that were straying from the fold to guide them back. So in that dark valley, in that terrifying place where fear would seem to be the only natural reaction, the believer, the child of God, says, I will fear no evil because the Lord is with me. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. But then look at this, verse 5. Now I will tell you that this particular verse, the Lord made this very personal to me. Very personal to me in 2015 and 16. You prepare a table before me in the presence of who? My enemies. What is David saying there? Even in the presence of those who want to take my life, who want nothing but to destroy me, Lord, you prepare a table for me in their presence, in front of them, you witness that you are my God and you are providing for me. You are supplying everything I need, even in front of my very enemies. They will see that you are my God. This is a witness, even to the enemies. But as we've seen tonight from Isaiah, King Ahaz didn't believe that, did he? King Ahaz did not believe that. Instead, he got in bed with his enemies. The last great principle is this. Walking by faith and not by sight goes beyond what mere human reason can understand or figure out since our trust is resting in God who is infinite and eternal. You've heard me say this before, and very fitting to say it here. None of us will ever comprehend God. Never. We will apprehend, but never comprehend. The finite will never comprehend the infinite. Never. Even when we are in glory, do not think to yourself now on this side of glory, well, when I get to glory, then I'll figure God out. No, you won't. You're still going to be the creature. You're still going to be the creature. He will always be God, and you never will be. Never. We will be perfected like Christ in his humanity, but never in his deity. So Kenneth Copeland got it wrong. And Kenneth Hagin got it wrong. And all those other false teachers, indeed those heretics who say, cats beget cats and dogs beget dogs and God begets little gods. That's a direct quote 
from those heretics. No, no, no. The God we serve, the God we love, the God we fear, the God we worship is infinite. Our trust, therefore, our walking by faith in the Lord is going to be tested over and over and over again when we're looking at the numbers on the paper and we're crunching the numbers and we're saying, but we won't make it. Well, if you're walking by sight, you're right, you won't. Take the paper, throw it away. Tear it up, throw it away. What you have to say is God is with us. And God has promised to supply all we need according to his riches, not man's riches, his riches in Christ Jesus. And because God is infinite, let me ask you, is there any limit to his riches? No. They're boundless, they're measureless, they're limitless. And God will provide everything, everything you and I need as his people. He will not forsake us, he will not abandon us. No, 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 no. He will make certain and sure that we have everything we need. Now, it may not be, and often it's not, when we think it ought to be. But that's how he grows us in greater faith, to trust him. But it will come. The need will be fulfilled. And his timing, and I hate to sound cliche, because it's not a cliche, but we know his timing is always perfect. Governed by his perfect wisdom. So, again, walking by faith and not by sight goes beyond what mere King Ahaz instead of going to the Lord, he went to the to the emergency water supply to make sure that they had enough for the impending attack. But he never went to the Lord. He never cried out to God because he didn't believe God. But yet the Lord comes to Ahaz and says, be still, be quiet, do not fear. Indeed, do nothing but trust me. And brothers and sisters, this is how God teaches us to live every day as his people. This is why it's foolish, as you heard me preach a few weeks ago, it is foolish, because the Bible says so, to be worried, to be anxious, to be afraid about tomorrow. Your times are in God's hands. You have nothing to fear.
ten of them compared Israel to those people, right. but the two compared them to God. That's right. They said, God says it's ours, it's going to Yep, and out of 12 spies, only Joshua and Caleb came back trusting God. Indeed, that's right. Good, good example. Well, let's pray, beloved. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you truly are our great, eternal, immutable, infinite, measureless, boundless God. And therefore, Lord, everything you do that proceeds from all that you are is immutable, eternal, boundless, measureless. And so, Lord, you, you tell us, you communicate to us throughout your word to fear not. To fear not to not be anxious, to not be worried about this future that we cannot see because you assure us, Lord, that that future is firmly in your hands, firmly under your control because it's a future you've already written in your book before it ever existed. And because you are for us, Lord, and not against us, since we are your people chosen before the foundation of the world and given to Christ your Son who is our Savior and Lord, we can have precious confidence in you and we can be fearless facing a future that we cannot see. But Lord, you have given us the eyes to see you. And so you tell us in your word to trust in you with all of our heart and not to lean any of our weight upon our own understanding. And so we trust in you tonight, Lord, especially in the light of what we have seen and what we have understood from your word in Isaiah and how you judged Judah and Ahaz for their unbelief. Father, Increase our faith and our trust in you as you did that remnant of Isaiah's time to where we will say with great heartfelt, faith-filled confession, for God is with us. In Jesus' name, amen.